Greetings from Faith Community Baptist Church. We love you, we love your pastor, and we pray for you week after week. I'm glad to be with you all once again and worship our triune God. If you would turn to Hebrews, if you're not already there, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 20. Well, let's uh, read from verse 1. Hebrews 12 through verse 24. This is the inspired and the inerrant and the infallible word of our God. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess that we come from the world 
into your special presence. Tired, weary, many of us faint-hearted, and yet we hear your word and we ask for grace as your word is preached to us that you would help us to receive it not merely as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in your people for our salvation. Render us grace now, grace to hear, grace to receive your word with fullness of faith, grace to continue to repent of our sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Through Christ, our Lord and Savior, our refuge and our strength, through Christ we beg. Amen. It has often been said that the Christian life is like a race. It involves running. And we find this kind of imagery in the Sermon to the Hebrews. A matter of fact, at the beginning of chapter 12, if you notice there, we find an overarching exhortation to run with endurance the race marked out for us. But notice that coupled with running is also looking, or some translations will say fixing our eyes. You can run with your eyes closed, but you won't get very far. So coupled with the verb run is the verb look. Now, if any one of us is carefully contemplating the Christian life, well, you know that this life is a race and it's longer than any race imagined in this world. And coupled with length of this race is the difficulty, the the challenge of this race. There's no maturing Christian that imagines they're running like an Olympian. Much of the time, the Christian is running like a soldier in battle, just trying to make it to the end, but the end seems so far away. In chapter 12, verse 3, the preacher to the Hebrews is well aware of the experience of the Christian life. Our running is confronted by weight. Our running is confronted by sin so that the Christian can grow weary and faint-hearted. And then we consider the matter of the Lord's discipline. Yes, he disciplines those he loves, but it is painful rather than pleasant. And even when the Christian is trained by it and it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, The Christian wonders, how much longer until my race is over? How much longer until I come to the end? Well, our text this morning contributes to the imagery of running. It contributes to the imagery of looking by telling the Christian where they have come. This is interesting. Does the Christian life involve running? We would say yes. Does the Christian life involve looking? We would say yes. Yes, of course, we must look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. But added to this, the preacher to the Hebrews tells the Christian where they have come to. Christian runs, looks because of where they have come. One could say that in order to run, the eyes must be opened and the one who runs must know where he is going. Maybe you have heard someone trying to describe a difficult circumstance in their life and they'll say, I'm trying to persevere but I don't know if I'm going or if I'm coming. All they can see is what is before them. 
Perhaps they are looking to Christ. They know that he is all they need, and yet Christ and all his blessings, they still seem so far away. My brothers and sisters, I'm sure this has been your experience in the past. It has been mine. Perhaps this is your experience right now. Maybe your experience in the future. The reality is that we often run the Christian life looking more at ourselves than to Christ. And often when we look to Christ, our vision of Christ is still blurred by the troubles of this life. And we lose sight not only of what he has accomplished, but what Christ has also applied. Not only what he has done, but what he has given to us. This still remains blurry in our perspective. And so the preacher to the Hebrews is saying here, not only is the Christian life a race that you must run, Not only must you run with your eyes open looking to Jesus, but with your running and looking is the reality of where you have come. Now for many, their mind turns right away to the principle of the already not yet. This principle guards the Christian life from an over-realized eschatology. Now those are just big words for over-realizing last things. So this kind of perspective lives the Christian life as if you've already arrived. There's no common curse. There is no more sin. Suffering and trial are behind us. And if a Christian thinks otherwise than this, well, maybe they're not a Christian. This already not yet principle is important for a realistic understanding then of the Christian life. But there's a danger here. The danger is to focus on the not yet to the neglect of the already. And this results in an under-realized. So you have over-realized, under-realized eschatology. And those are just big words for not realizing what is already our possession in Christ. This also can affect the Christian life negatively, living as not yet, still under the common curse, still running, unable to lay aside the sin which clings so closely. And every day is just viewed as a stock full of trials and suffering. And if a Christian thinks otherwise, well, those that hold to an under-realized eschatology, they'll say, well, you're probably not a Christian. You're probably over-realizing things. But our text this morning provides the balm for this imbalanced perspective, either focusing on the already or just focusing on the not yet. And it's wrapped up in the word hope. The principal subject of Hebrews 11 is faith, principal subject of Hebrews 12 is hope, and of 13, love. But we have to ask, what is hope? Now here we're still laying down the context. What is hope? We can understand hope as an emotion and as a theological virtue, okay? As an emotion, it's a response to sensible good. Distinct from desire, hope as an emotion stretches out to a future good. Hope understood as an emotion is a sensible good. It responds to good, but by the senses. This is hope as an emotion. But on the other hand, we have hope as a theological virtue. Understood in this way, hope is a virtue of grace that perfects the will. It perfects the will such that the will, coupled with the virtue of faith, stretches toward the good. And it is a theological virtue. Why? Because God himself is is the good. And it is called hope because it is still focused on a future good. So it's given by grace, 
stretching out to a future good. And who is that good? God. To put it succinctly, the act of Christian hope is the will inclined toward eternal good as something possible to it by God's grace. Still leaves us with the question, how is hope the balm for this imbalanced perspective on the already not yet? The answer is because hope is not just something far away. Hope is not just a wish. It's not something that in no way is already present. Rather, as a theological virtue, it is that gift of God's grace coupled with faith by which we choose that future good. And get this, in this sense, hope is already not yet. Already because the Christian right now in this life is willing and choosing that future good. And still it is not yet because that future good is still yet to come in full. Nevertheless, our text on Christian hope comes to us not only within the context of faith as we see in chapter 11, but running through chapter 11, 12, and 13 is perseverance. The preacher to the Hebrews is addressing Christians who must endure. But the main question this morning is, how and why can the Christian persevere? Our text answers that question. The main point of this sermon is persevere how? In hope. Why? Because you have not come to the curse of the law, but you have come to the blessing of the gospel. Persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law, but the blessing of the gospel. We'll examine our text under two headings, and those two headings are just unfolding this one main point. So first, persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. That's verses 18 chapter 12 through 21. Persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. Second, persevere in hope because you have come to the blessing of the gospel. That's verses 22 to 24. Persevere in hope because you have come to the blessing of the gospel. So first, persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. I want you to note three things from verses 18 through 21. The frightening things they saw, verse 18. The frightening things they heard, verse 19. And the frightening things they faced, verse 20 and 21. What they saw, what they heard, what they faced. First, the frightening things they saw. The preacher says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Here we are reminded of what Israel saw at Mount Sinai, and in particular, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And the first assertion, you have not come, it's important to understand this as implying a contrast in the way the Israelites came. Notice what one commentator wrote. He said, The theme is now resumed of the definitive contrast between the old and the new, which permeates. 
The contrast between the imperfect, he says, and the perfect, the temporary and the permanent, the law and the gospel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11, it says that the Israelites came and stood at the foot of the mountain, a mountain that may be touched. But as Exodus 19, 12 reads, whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. The words of blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, those words take us back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 11, where it said that the mountain burned with fire and there was darkness, cloud, and tempest. This was frightening. Israel saw things that were frightening. But it's important to understand the reason for these things. That is, by the very things they saw, God manifested his presence. This is what we call a theophany. And in this particular event, it was intended to invoke fear in the hearts of the nation of Israel. As one pastor said, this medium was the message. Owen, John Owen, puts it this way. These visible manifestations, he says, were provided to bring about a particular response from the people. It wasn't just about what they saw. God in this way was revealing his holiness. He was confronting Israel with their sinfulness. God was impressing upon the nation the infinite chasm that exists between the creator and the creature. As they saw that fire, they were confronted with God's judgment. As they saw the darkness and gloom and tempest, they were confronted with their spiritual condition. And what they saw was the very curse of the law. The curse of the covenant of works was impressed upon their consciences. The curse which says, everyone who disobeys will die in their sin. That's the principle. And note, this was not coupled with the promise that if they did obey, they would have eternal life. We just see the curse of the covenant of works, not the promises. The curse of the covenant of works remains under the Mosaic covenant, but not its promises. There was nothing here to suggest that if they obeyed, they would have eternal life. Rather, if they obeyed, they would only live in the land. Soon they would die in their sins. But still, the curse of the law remained. What Israel saw was the very curse of the law. And we think of what they saw and we have to make a contrast between what we see. Beloved, if you have trusted in Christ alone, this is not where you have come. This is not where you have come because this is where Christ has gone for you. Christ in his humanity has borne this frightening sight. Christ bore the fire of God's judgment. Christ saw that darkness and gloom and tempest most acutely, both in body and soul, at the cross. My brothers and sisters, you have not come to the curse of the law because Christ has borne that curse of the law. Paul declares in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And what was seen by Israel was more acutely seen by Christ so that all you may see are the blessings of the gospel. This is how and why you persevere in the midst of the trouble and the pain and the challenge and the difficulty of this life. 
You persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law, but you have come to the blessing of the gospel. But the preacher to the Hebrews doesn't stop with what Israel saw. He adds what they heard. The preacher continues, And the sound of the trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Here we are reminded of Exodus 19.16 where it says, The loud blast of a trumpet sounded. And in Deuteronomy 4.12, recalling that same event, says the Lord spoke to them out of the midst of the fire and they heard the sound of words. And this was so awesome in itself to make the hearers entreat that no further messages be spoken to them. Remember, Israel said to Moses, you speak to us and we will hear, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Remember, the purpose of this theophany was a particular response. And that was what? Fear from the people. It was not only seeing the curse of the law that invoked fear within their hearts, but here we see hearing the prohibitions of the law intensified that fear within their hearts. Remember, they were not allowed to touch what they saw while God's presence was being manifested. Any infraction was to be punished with death. Even Moses, who drew near to the divine presence, drew near trembling with fear because he too saw and heard the curse of the law. Moses could only draw near because of God's call to him. But everyone heard the curse of the law and the sound of the trumpet, the curse which says that everyone who disobeys will die in their sin. Again, there was nothing here to suggest that if they obeyed, they would have eternal life. But rather, if they obeyed, they would only live in the land, but still the curse of the law remained. What Israel heard was the curse of the law. But we have to make a contrast. This is not what the new covenant Christian hears. If you have trusted in Christ alone, this is not where you have come. This is not where you have come because this is where Christ has gone for you. Christ in his humanity has borne these frightening and sensible things. Christ heard the sound of the trumpet as it were and that voice that made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken. And he did so most acutely in both body and soul at the cross. Christ heard Deuteronomy 27, 26 that says, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them. Christ heard. Christ obeyed. He heard perfect, perpetual obedience was required. And Christ performed. Christ has done so so that all you may hear is the blessing of the gospel. This is how and why you persevere. How you persevere in hope. Why? Because this is not where you have come. You have not come to the curse of the law. No matter what you may feel or what you may think, if you have trusted in Christ alone, you have not come to the curse of the law. But the preacher to the Hebrews concludes with the frightening things Israel faced. Not only what they saw and heard, 
but what they faced. The preacher to the Hebrews says, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. It's interesting to note that here the preacher to the Hebrews turns from the description of fire and darkness and trumpet and voice to the very words of God spoken. You say, well, God wasn't there. He was manifesting his presence. God was speaking, and they could not bear the very words that he spoke. Words composed the order that was given to Israel, and they could not endure the order given in the words of the law. It seems here that the most terrifying, sensible experience was being faced with the very words of the living God. So terrifying that even one who was allowed to approach and ascend the mountain trembled with fear. Even Moses trembled with fear. Why? Because he, along with Israel, faced the inscrutable presence of God. They were confronted with the character of God by his holy law. Like Adam and Eve, upon their fall, they could not endure the order that was given to them. Nor can we endure the order that is given to us. But we make that contrast. Beloved, you have not come to the curse of the law. If you have trusted in Christ alone, this is not where you have come because this is where Christ has gone for you. Christ in his humanity has borne these frightening things. Christ faced the order that was given that no man, no mere man in this world can endure. And Christ did so most acutely at the cross. My brothers and sisters, you have not come to the curse of the law. What was faced by Israel was more acutely faced by Christ. Christ, whom we read of in chapter 12, verse 2 For the joy set before him endured what? He endured the cross, despising the shame. And we know this is so because he was buried. He descended into hell to declare the victory he had accomplished. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And as the preacher has already expressed, he is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. Christ has done all of this so that all you face, as you persevere, as you endure, all the challenges of of this life from morning till evening, week after week, year after year, all you face is truly and only the blessing of the gospel. This is how and why you persevere in hope, because you have not come to the curse of the law. But you may ask, how How do I know I have not come to the curse of the law? You're telling me, if I have trusted in Christ, I have not come to the curse of the law, but how do I know I have not come to the curse of the law? Let me provide you with the syllogism. It's a method of reasoning. There's a main premise, there's a supporting premise, and there's a logical conclusion. The main premise is Christ has come and borne the curse of the law. The supporting premise is I have trusted in Christ alone. And what is the logical conclusion? I am no longer under the curse of the law, but I have come to the blessing of the gospel. 
You know, Martin Luther said, feelings come and feelings go and feelings are deceiving. My hope is in the word of God. Nothing else is worth believing. When you feel you have not come to the blessings of the gospel, turn back to the word of God. Rehearse that syllogism in your mind because you have not come to the curse of the law, but the blessing of the gospel. Christ says, persevere in hope because you have come to the blessing of the gospel. These are verses 22 to 24. Here I want you to note three things. First, you have come to the blessing of future glory. That's verse 22, the blessing of future glory. Second, you have come to the blessing of companionship with the church. That's verse 23, the first part of verse 23, 23a. You have come to companionship with the church. And third, you have come to the blessing of familiarity with God. The blessing of familiarity with God. That's verses 23 through 24. As we briefly contemplate the blessing of the gospel, one commentator writes, how different, I hope you see it, how different are the circumstances of Zion, the mount of God's grace, where thanks to the perfect law-keeping and all-sufficient sacrifice of the incarnate Son in our stead, we are incited. How different it is. We are incited to draw near with boldness into the heavenly holy of holies. My brothers and sisters, we read earlier in the sermon to the Hebrews, that we have access to the holy places because of what? The shed blood of Jesus, because Christ himself endured to the very end, because he persevered, we have come to the blessing of the gospel. If you're going to persevere into the very end, with joy even as you sorrow, you need to rehearse these truths morning and evening, meditating on where you have come. The blessing of future glory the blessing of companionship with the church, the blessing of familiarity with God. First, you have come to the blessing of future glory. The preacher to the Hebrews says, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Here we observe varied descriptions of this future glory to which we persevere in hope. It's given to us in several words. Mount Zion, in one sense, comprehends all that is written in verses 20 through to 24. But in another sense, it represents God's dwelling place. We see that in Psalm 9, verse 11. Mount Zion represents the king's throne, as we see in Psalm 2, verse 6. This is further described by the words, city of the living God. This means that the Mount Zion here is not physical or temporal place like Mount Sinai, but it is the heavenly Jerusalem symbolized by that earthly city of Jerusalem. And Paul's allegory in Galatians 4.25 provides a perfect contrast to Mount Sinai and the Jerusalem that's above. It's distinguished between bondage and freedom. This heavenly city of freedom is the same city to which Abraham and faith looked forward. And we read that in Hebrews 11 verse 10. It is the same city to which we, the church militant on this earth by faith look forward to. As the preacher to the Hebrews says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. 
This city is the capital of the new heavens and the new earth where God dwells with men and all the former things have passed away. As the Apostle John declares in Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven, and I saw a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. Just think about that. Think about his words of seeing in this vision in contrast to what Israel saw. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But it doesn't stop there. Back in Hebrews, the preacher declares that having come to the hope of future glory, we have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Most Christians don't think much about angels. But these are the mighty ones who perpetually serve the Lord, perpetually performing his will, We see in Psalm 103, verse 20, it says, His hosts, his ministers who do his will, are also sent to serve his people. Hebrews 1.14, the preacher says, They are sent out for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Angels are those with whom the people of God are united. We read of this in Ephesians 1.10. There we see all things are united in Christ. All things, he says, in heaven on earth these angels then are an additional joy to the company of the saints together all the saints and all the angels bless the father bless the son and bless the spirit three in one forever and ever world without end amen beloved persevere in hope because to this hope of future glory you have come as your will inclines toward this eternal good by grace The hope of glory is already yours. Yes, it seems like it's so far away, but get this. Every Sabbath day, when you come to worship with the church, you've entered his special presence. Christ, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are especially present in a way they're not present when we leave this gathering together but God is really present. The Lord Jesus by his spirit is really present. And angels are really present. While you are seated, while you are standing, while you're listening and you're praying and you're singing and taking part in the supper, you are persevering in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. You have really, truly come to the blessing of the gospel. Already you have come because right now in this life, you're willing and choosing that future good. 
And at the same time, it's, it's not yet because that future good, that future glory is still to come in full. But Christ, the one who in his humanity saw and heard and faced the curse of the law for his people, Christ is especially present by his spirit. And Christ says to you this morning, persevere in hope because you have come to this blessing of the gospel. You have come to the blessing of future glory. That's not all. You have come to the blessing of companionship with the church. Verse 23, the preacher says, And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Still the contrast between the curse of the law and the blessing of the gospel, we need to keep that contrast in mind here. The language here reminds us of the assembly of Israel under the leadership of Moses at Sinai. We need to remember Israel was regarded by God as his firstborn in Exodus 4.22. But in light of the new covenant, the title of firstborn is transferred to the New Testament church, the kingdom of Christ, both locally and universally. How? Through the agency of the gospel. Sinners are saved. Sinners are reborn. According to God's mercy, they are born anew, as we read in 1 Peter, they're born anew to a living hope. As James puts it, they are the first fruits of his creatures, dedicated to God, members of Christ's body, heirs of all things, by virtue of their union with Christ, who is the firstborn of the dead. The assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Who are they? But the companions of the church. And this companionship is a permanent companionship. Athanasius, commenting on Matthew 25, 34, he says, Who would not wish to enjoy the high companionship of these? Who would not desire to be enrolled with these, that he may hear with them? Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Yes, in this life we experience troubles in the church. We see brothers and sisters come and go. Sometimes we need to come and go. But we have this blessing of the gospel. And this is a permanent companionship with the church. I want you to look around you. Look at your brothers and sisters. There's nothing wrong with looking around in worship. You know why? Because these are your permanent companions the church you have not come by yourself you have come to gather with the church so I encourage you each, each Lord's Day though you come with your family remember you come gathering with the saints gathering with the very companions you will be with forever. It may not be your whole life now, but if you're in Christ, it will be eternity. It's one thing I love about the privilege of preaching. Is I get a panoramic view of everyone. It's something that we don't see when we're sitting down. That's why we have to look around. But this is beautiful. This is companionship with the church. 
And yet we still have to ask ourselves, how, how do we persevere in hope when the gates of hell press against the church? We hear that verse, the gates of hell will not prevail. But it doesn't say the gates of hell will not press. How do you rejoice even when sin in the church hurts the church? My friends, you remember that there is one who has founded the church. There is one who perfects the church. There is one who disciplines the church. There is one who trains the church. You must remember Jesus Christ. It is Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame to establish this assembly enrolled in heaven. This is the assembly we read of in Hebrews 11. Who was guiding them? Who was guiding all those saints? Who was protecting those saints? Who sustained them and nourished them? It was Jesus Christ. So when you're feeling discouraged about the church and you don't know what to do, when your energies hang low, persevere in hope because you have not come to the curse of the law. No matter how dark the church's life may be, you have come to the blessing of the gospel. You have companionship with the church of God forever. But third, we have come to the blessing of familiarity with God. The preacher says, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is familiarity with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And familiarity here is meant positively. First, familiarity with God the Father. The preacher declares, God, the judge of all. God, the one before whom everyone has to stand. He is judge of all because he is one. Now, care must be taken here to not separate the operations of the blessed Trinity. While the doctrine of appropriations teaches that there are particular works, there are particular effects that may be appropriated to one of the persons of the Trinity, we must be careful to remember the doctrine of inseparable operations. All this may sound technical, but it's really beautiful. This doctrine of inseparable operations teaches that as the Trinity is one, God, so the triune persons always act inseparably as one God and not simply cooperatively, not simply collectively. So by way of appropriation here, the particular work of judgment is attributed to God the Father. Notice that unlike Mount Sinai, where Israel was unable to come even before the immediate manifestation of the presence of the Lord, here the blessing of the gospel is that we are granted access to come to God. We're granted access to come to the judge of all. We are granted access to God the Father because God the Father is our Father. Having adopted us as his sons and daughters, he is our Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we should persevere in hope because we have come to God the Father. And if God is for us, who can be against us? As we read in Hebrews 12, 3 through 17, God the Father disciplines the one he loves and he chastises the one he receives. And why is that? Because he who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, 
how will he not with us freely give us all things? My brothers and sisters, persevere in hope because you have come to God the Father. Second is familiarity with God the Son, God the Spirit, verse 23. The preacher says, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now it may not seem as clear at the forefront how one arrives at God the Spirit here, but by implication we can arrive at familiarity with God the Holy Spirit. Think about it. How are the spirits of the righteous made perfect? How is the Christian made complete? The Holy Spirit, by way of appropriation. In Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, the apostle says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He goes on to say, Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I think it best to understand that the spirits of the righteous made perfect as referring to all who through faith have been accounted righteous by God, who after their earthly pilgrimage have been made complete and they've been made complete by the spirit of Christ dwelling in them. By the spirit of Christ having sealed them for that day of redemption as we read of in Ephesians 4.30. So as one theologian wrote, all justice and all perfection is from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, by implication, we can say that the blessing of the gospel is familiarity with God the Holy Spirit. By the authority of Christ, limited by the word of God, I can say if you are in Christ, the spirit of Christ dwells in you. And this is the spirit who gives life. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And this is not a spirit of slavery. That's the spirit we saw from the Israelites and their response to what was manifested there at Mount Sinai. This is not a spirit of slavery, but a spirit of adoption. Romans 8.15, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Beloved, you should persevere in hope because you have come to God, the Holy Spirit. You have been given the comforter and perfecter of your soul. Third and finally, familiarity with God the Son. Verse 24. The preacher says, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The preacher has already described Christ as a mediator of a new covenant, which is also a better covenant. In chapter 8, verse 6, he declares the excellency of this new covenant. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. In chapter 9, verse 15 of Hebrews, the preacher provides the concluding result of the new covenant. He says, therefore, he, that is Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. They may receive. It's present tense. 
the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. You see, the prophets knew that God would establish a covenant more excellent than the old because the old was inadequate. But unlike the old, the new covenant is fully adequate and it's everlasting in its efficacy. Christ perfectly obeyed the precepts of the law and he bore the penalty of the law on behalf of his people. As was mentioned earlier, Christ saw, Christ heard, and Christ faced the curse of the law so that as the Apostle Paul said, we, those who believe, might become the righteousness of God. And this is why the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of bulls and goats, and it speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin permanently. It could not take away sin perpetually, nor could the blood shed of the first man. The murder of Abel was but a picture. It was but a picture pointing to Christ who would be murdered by his brothers. But unlike Abel, Christ gave up his life willingly for his people, willingly for sinners whom he would call his very own brothers. This is why the sprinkled blood of Christ speaks a better word because it speaks a gracious word. As one commentator said, it speaks of eternal redemption. It speaks of the purging of consciences. It speaks of the perfection and sanctification of all to whom it is applied. It speaks of acceptance instead of rejection. It speaks of blessing instead of cursing. Abel's blood cried out for judgment. But Christ's blood cries out for mercy and pardon. My brothers and sisters, you have this assurance that Christ's blood forever silences that accusing voice of your past, present, and future wickedness. This is the blessing of familiarity with God the Son. My friends, what has been briefly contemplated here is the true reality. So as you keep running and looking to Jesus, do not forget where you have come. The foundation of the blessing of the gospel is familiarity with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, that to which we have come rests on the inseparable operations of the triune God. So as our confession reads in 2 London 17.1, though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of the love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraven upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity." I have to say, my unbelieving friend, this is not where you have come. Look at verse 25 of chapter 12. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And by the authority of Christ, I warn you, if you have not come all the way to faith in Jesus Christ, you are dead in your sins and you must be born again. So come. 
Repent. Turn from your sins. Come to Jesus Christ. My believing friends, as you continue to run by faith, looking to Jesus, as you continue to run amidst all the mountaintops and all the valleys of this life, even when you are tempted to grow weary and you feel faint under God's discipline, hope for what you do not see. Choosing that future good, which is where you have come. Again, how and why can you persevere? Persevere how? In hope. Why? Because you have not come to the curse of the law, but you have come to the blessing of the gospel. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do confess that we often despair. We are focused upon the here and now, upon what is seen with our eyes, what we see in our souls, that remnant of corruption within us, our sin against you, and we despair. Forgive us, O Lord, by the merits of Christ, And render us grace that we might increase in hope even as we persevere to our heavenly home. Give grace to my brothers and sisters, my fellow pilgrims who are headed to their heavenly home. Give them grace to persevere in hope, remembering, recalling, meditating upon that true reality that they have not come to the curse of the law, but because of your Son, Jesus Christ, because of the blessed operations of the Holy Trinity, they have come to the blessing of the gospel. Give us grace, O Lord, to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And Father, there are those among us who are only exhibiting hope as an emotion, having not ordered their loves, they Pursue the things of this world. Only what is in this world is their hope. They are dead in their sins, blinded to the glory of Christ. And if they do not repent and believe upon your Son, they will die in their sins. And so we cry out for saving grace. But the answer to the troubles in this world are not found in creation, but in you, the creator of all things. For it is a trustworthy statement and deserving a full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Father, have mercy on these and grant them the grace of belief in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask for grace now to lay it up in our hearts and to put it into practice in our lives. Through Christ, who perfectly persevered, Christ, very God, very man, our Lord and Savior, 
Through him we pray. Amen.